Well, good morning, everybody. Doing all right? Okay, so we are in week two of our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we began this uh, last week with an introduction of this massive problem that's existing in the time that Matthew is writing his gospel. Now, opening kind of clarification is Matthew's account, his gospel, is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's telling the message of this person along with his teachings. Now, the beginning of this gospel, this biographical account, begins with the genealogy. And again, that genealogy is the answer to this very complicated problem that we worked through last week. Namely, that at the beginning of the first century, in the world that Jesus was about to be born into, it appears as if the line of David is broken and or corrupted. And you might say, why is that a, a, a massive problem? Well, for a number of reasons. First, God makes some promises to some people in the Old Testament. First, with Eve. He tells Eve that one day a descendant of hers will strike back at evil, strike back at the head of the serpent. Subsequent to that, he makes a promise to Abraham. And he tells Abraham that you and your descendants will bless all the families of the earth. And this, all the families of the earth is, is spoken in a communal culture. We're a very individualistic culture. So in ancient times, you might say all the families of the earth, but that essentially means Abraham's descendant is going to bless every last human being in some way. Then on top of that, God makes promises to this guy named David. He tells David, you are going to have a kingdom that will be everlasting, a throne that will not know end. If you dig into that, it, it, it hints at this idea that this is not just some earthly type of kingdom. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. David's kingdom will be everlasting. His throne will not see end. And so you're waiting in the Old Testament for some figure to emerge. And this idea of a Messiah begins to occur. And the hope of Israel is that one day there would be a descendant of Eve, Abraham, and David who would fulfill the promises of God, and this Messiah would strike back at evil, strike back at the head of the serpent. Now, at the end of the Old Testament, you get some horrific images, namely the last king of Judah being brutally killed and his sons being brutally killed, and it appears as if the line of David is broken. And even if it was still active, it certainly appears corrupted because everyone's wicked and sinful like all of the time. And then between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament, we talked about something called the intertestamental period. It's this 400-year period that takes place. Last page, Old Testament. First page, New Testament. So you turn one page, 400 years. And in that 400 years, there's violence and war and brutality. And the people of Israel go from being oppressed from one empire after another, from the, the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And last week we saw how Matthew's solution to the appearance of the line of David being broken and corrupted was a genealogy. Now in week two, I want to introduce you to another massive problem. And this massive problem rests in a question. Where is the presence of God? Where is the presence of God? Now, to fully understand this question, we have to do some, some background work like we did last week. So first, there is a term, a theological term, it's 
omnipresence. And omnipresence refers to this idea that God is everywhere, all of the time, all at once. Everywhere you go, God is. There is no place in the created order that God is not. The psalmist says that even if I were to make my bed in hell, still there you would find me. So God is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. There's nowhere you could go from his presence. However, omnipresence doesn't mean that God can't uniquely manifest his presence in a special way. So, for example, in, in the Old Testament, a prophet by the name of Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God. And he encounters the presence of God in a unique and powerful way. And when he encounters the presence in this way, he says, Woe is to me, for I am, in Hebrew, dachma, undone. He says, I am coming undone at the very fabric of my being because I am in the presence of this holy God. Now, Isaiah wasn't like, when he got to the throne room, you know, oh, I'm used to this. I'm always coming undone at the fabric of my very being because you're omnipresent and everywhere there you are. No, he understands he's experiencing the presence of God in a unique and special way. In the Tower of Babel incident, if you're familiar with the story, it says that God comes down. Now, does God need to come down from anywhere? No, he's omnipresent, everywhere at once, all of the time. But he comes down in a special and unique way. Or, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush, Moses encounters God, the presence of God, in a special and unique way. It's not as if, like, Moses loved hiking and he hiked those mountains so much that finally he found where God lives. You know, he just... God lives in this bush. He likes it out here type of thing. That's not the way it works. God is uniquely revealing his presence. Now, in the Bible, there are two locations where God reveals his presence in a wholly distinct and unique way. And it's in gar the garden and the temple. So first, in the garden, Adam and Eve dwell with God in the garden. They live with him. If you're familiar with it, remember it says that, that Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, however God was revealing his presence at that point, it, the, the scripture is saying that in some sense it was revealed in such a powerful way that like Adam and Eve heard it. They heard God approaching. So he's everywhere all at once, but he could also specially reveal himself. Adam and Eve from last week, you know, they sin, they rebel, sin spirals out of control. Um, and Genesis go on, and then we, the first book of the Bible, Genesis goes on, and then we enter into Exodus. And in Exodus, God's people find themselves in slavery under oppression by the Egyptian, the Egyptians. God delivers them, and he defeats the gods of Egypt, and he takes the people of Israel to the promised land. But before the promised land, they're in something called the wilderness. It's this period of wilderness wanderings. And it's there in the wilderness that God, God again reveals his presence to his people. He dwells with them. He lives with them. A tabernacle is constructed, a big giant tent, if you will. And in the tabernacle, God dwells and he reveals his presence. Now, this is an image of the layout of the wilderness wanderings. And so right here in the center is the actual tabernacle. It's this like mobile tent that God is said to dwell in where his presence is revealed. On the outside of that here, 
That's the priest, where the priest would stay. But then on the far outside, this is what's important. See all these boxes on the outside? Those are where the 12 tribes of Israel would encamp. Now question, when you look at this image, what theological truth is being revealed by the layout of the tabernacle and the 12 tribes of Israel? You look at it. God is in the center of his people. He is choosing to dwell among his people. At the very center, his people surround him. Now, some of you might be saying, well, that, that was obvious. I thought you were, like, asking some deeper, profound theological question. Man, of course God's in the center. But it's because we can grow accustomed to these theological truths. Think, I mean, this is the, the infinite one dwelling with finite ones. The holy with the sinful and rebellious, the perfect with the imperfect. God is choosing to dwell among his people. It's powerful. Now, God would let his people know that he was dwelling with his people. And he does so in a very specific way. I'm going to turn to the last verses of the book of Exodus. These are the very last verses in the book of Exodus. And it's taking place right after the dedication of the tabernacle. So this tabernacle, this tent where God is supposed to dwell, is built and constructed and they've dedicated it. They said, this is going to be used for the Lord. And this is what happens. And these are the last verses of the book of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would, not, would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. God is uniquely manifesting his presence. And he would do so in something called the Holy of Holies. This is the innermost area, the sanctuary of the tabernacle, if you will. And he does so by giving evidence of his presence with this appearance of a cloud. And look at the emphasis here. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel had set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So you see this image. It's like, it's making it crystal clear. There is an image that stands in place of the presence of God because the presence is also called the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and the evidence of that is the appearance of this cloud. Now there's some things, some language stuff we have to, we have to understand in order to make sense of this. We've talked about this in the past, but in the Old Testament, when you encounter the word Lord, and it's all in capitals, that is referring to the Hebrew name of God. It's not just Lord or God in the generic sense. In Hebrew, there's a name that was given for Israel to call upon God. And that name is represented by four Hebrew characters. 
Yod, He, Fa, He. And that kind of rep corresponds to the English letters Y, H, W, H. Now, Hebrew reads right to, to left, so that's why that's kind of confusing. You have to convert it to, to our system. So in Hebrew, God's holy covenantal name, the name that his children would call upon him by, is Yahweh. Yahweh. And Yahweh is said to be everywhere. Remember, he's omnipresent. There's no place where he is not. But Yahweh can also choose to reveal his presence in unique ways. And in the case of the tabernacle, he's revealing it in, this is my attempt of drawing a tent. It's a beautiful, wonderful tent. That's the tabernacle. So he's everywhere. You follow this? Yahweh is everywhere, but he can reveal himself in a more powerful way. And at this point in biblical history, it's in the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you know the glory of the Lord is there because of the cloud. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Kavod, its roots mean heavy there's, or weightiness. So follow the inner logic here. God is everywhere. But in the temple, the tabernacle, is a special revelation of his presence. And that presence is weighty. It has glory. It is heavy. And we kind of, kind of understand this lo logic. Even in modern English, we may say something like, don't take this lightly. And what, is the op what do you mean? Take it heavily? Well, what's the concept? Glory. There's a weight and a heaviness to the presence of God. And you know he's there because of the cloud. Now, after the tabernacle, the people of Israel eventually make it to the promised land. They're in Israel. And the capital is Jerusalem. And now they're not going to build a tabernacle. They're going to build a temple. And this is one of the confusing things in biblical history. And oftentimes we could use the term tabernacle and tem temple interchangeably. But they actually are different. They, they, they do most of the same things, but there's a little difference. Namely that the tabernacle is the mobile version of the temple. The tabernacle was in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And as the tabernacle moved, the people would move and they'd always surround it like the image I showed you. But once you don't have to live in like the mobile version, you build a house because you have a permanent place to build. And that's the temple in Jerusalem. It is the permanent version of the tabernacle. Now listen to the language that's used at the dedication of the temple. And when song was raised, when trumpets and cymbals and other music instruments in praise of the Lord. So they're celebrating. They've just dedicated the temple. Their song, everyone's celebrating. They're singing for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then this, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. And once again, cloud, cloud. And the cloud is there because the glory of the Lord is there. Later, Jewish rabbis would refer to this type of glory as the Shekinah glory. And they chose that word Shekinah because they were trying to communicate that God's presence when in the tabernacle and temple was a dwelling type of presence. It wasn't like in Tower of Babel, God comes down and then he leaves. But in the tabernacle and temple, God is choosing to dwell among his people, with his people. God is surrounded by his people. 
and his presence is still weighty and heavy. And so they would refer to that as the Shekinah glory of God. And that Shekinah glory of God appears in the tabernacle and temple with a cloud. Now, as we've talked about in the past, this temple is destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. And Israel once again finds, himself, finds themselves in captivity. The Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, they take all of this stuff out of it, and then they bring many of the survivors back into Babylon where they are captive and servants in Babylon. After a roughly 70-year period, many of the people are allowed to go back to Israel and back to Jerusalem. And so at that point, a guy named Zerubbabel starts to build the temple again because he's like, the temple was destroyed. We got to build this. We got to build a house for the Lord. And so he begins construction on what we call the second temple. Now, some important notes about the second temple. There's some things missing about the second temple. One of the major things that's missing is the Ark of the Covenant. If you're familiar with biblical history or Indiana Jones, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, and there's cherubim on it. There's these angelic beings that are on the sides. That's not there. It's lost. Now, in the imagery of the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is not just a box that keeps the law of God. It is called the footstool of God. It is the place of his throne. So in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sacred space of the temple is the throne room of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And his footstool is the Ark. And he's surrounded by and these angelic beings that are on top of it. So the throne room in the second temple is in some sense not there or missing what it used to have because it's been lost. Another thing that's missing, incredibly important. In the scriptures, when they dedicate the second temple, there's a celebration and all kinds of things occurring just like they did before at the tabernacle and first temple. But the glory cloud never comes down and fills the second temple. That Shekinah glory presence of God is not there. Now you have to be careful here and be incredibly nuanced because it's not as if this second temple is a bad thing. God ordered the construction of this second temple. He's for it. He sees it as a good thing. And in the Bible, there's actually verses and references to God in some sense being in that temple. And in the first century, people worshiped there. They made sacrifices there. The priesthood is working. All of that stuff is there. And it's not as if God is not there. Remember, God's omnipresent, first off. But it's not as if he's not there in any special way either. But the glory of the Lord revealed in the cloud in the first temple in the tabernacle is not there. And you can read literature from this time. And sort of people kind of know this second temple isn't as good as the first. Like, there's like, nah, you know, it's not... It used to be a lot more beautiful, man. It used to be a lot more gold pillars around here. And I can tell you there's a lot more things in the Holy of Holies. They knew, they, they knew it was good. They knew God was there, but it wasn't in the same way of old. One group you might be familiar with called the Essenes. They lived out in something called the Qumran community out in the desert. It's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. The reason why they're living out in the desert is because they don't want to go to the temple. They see the temple as somehow defiled or corrupted to such a degree that the presence of Yahweh is not there. So we're going to do our own thing in the wilderness and wait for the real Yahweh to reveal himself again. So this massive question is lingering. At the start of the first century, 
in the world that Jesus is about to enter into, the massive question is, where is the presence of God? Where is the Shekinah glory of God? Where is God uniquely revealing and manifesting his presence? Where is the Shekinah glory? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. A little bit about first century Jewish marriage and relationships that you have to understand to make sense of this. In that world, engagement was, in, it was as good as marriage. Once you got engaged, you were pretty much married. There was only one thing that separated real marriage from engagement. It had nothing to do with legal, had nothing to do with covenants or ceremonies. Only one thing that was different from being engaged and married. And you can fill in the blank. <laughs> marriage, the wedding night, consummated the marriage. But if you wanted to break off an engagement, it wasn't like us. If you want to break off engagement, you don't have to divorce your fiance. In this culture, that engagement was binding. So to break that off, you would have to have like the equivalent to a trial and divorce this person. And so it says, Joseph being a just man, he's just in that he wants to do stuff according to the law. He wants to obey the, the, the laws that, he, that he's been given, those of his forefathers and those of his faith. So he goes, this girl obviously committed adultery because I know that kid is not mine. And so I want to divorce her, but I want to do it in a way that preserves as much honor that she has. Because here's how the logic would work. The greater sort of trial and defense he could give of his innocence and the guilt and in turn guilt of Mary, the greater honor he would preserve for himself and the greater shame passed on to Mary. So he's trying to obey law and get out of this marriage that for all apparent reasons has, looks like it's been broken on Mary's part but also not shame her in the process. This is the, the type of person Joseph is. He's a man of character. And so he, he, he resolves to, to do this in a way that's done quietly to preserve Mary. But before he does that, it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because it pretty much is going to take an angel like to convince Joseph, right? Like Mary's going to be like, no, I promise I've been, I've been true to you. I love you. I don't know what's going on. And Joseph's like, even if he like wants to believe her, it's going to be impossible. So an angel shows up. He's like, no, 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 you're going to marry. You're going to marry Mary, okay? And she's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. An important word here, what sins? Um, because there's a lot of things that we want in the modern world for God to save us from. And there's a lot of things in the first century Jewish world that people would want God to save them from. One major one, for example, for Jews would be, how about you save us from the Romans? The Romans got their boot on our neck all of the time. We're oppressed, we're treated poorly. I don't wanna live like that, but more importantly, I don't want my kids to live under that. And I don't want my grandkids to live under that. So Lord, if you're gonna come save us, 
Why don't you save us from them? The angel says, this child will come and save, but he's, he's saving you from sin. And as modern people, of course, we don't like that. We don't, want to, we, don't, we don't think we need to be saved from our own sin. We have a whole culture built upon, and we've talked about this, like slogans that, that tell us we're perfect just the way we are. Don't change anything about yourself. You know, just you're so awesome. You're so wonderful all of the time. It's like you're omni-good. You're omni-cute. And it's like the Bible confronts us. Like, no, you have to be saved from your sin and your rebellion. Now, think about this. I've only recently noticed this, even though it's, it's like painfully obvious. Maybe you've noticed it already, but. The angel tells Joseph what the name of the child is going to be. So recall back to when, if you have children, when you named your first child. Some of you, it might have been easy. You knew right away what the baby's name was going to be. Some was like, to the last minute. You're waiting to the last minute. You don't know. Maybe, uh, you and your spouse, you're not even on the same page about it. And, and maybe you kind of like this weird name, but you're afraid all of your friends are going to think it's lame. And so you do one of those things where you don't tell anybody and you just announce it on social media to just get, like, get it out there. Get it out there. They can all talk behind our backs. They don't like it. And then when they see the baby, they'll tell us it's a good name. Just get it over with. <laughs> but you still got to choose the name. Mary and Joseph, no, this child already has a name. And his name is Jesus. Now, some important things about this name of Jesus. In English, we have this name, Jesus, okay? That comes to us from the Latin. And in Latin, the name of Jesus was roughly pronounced something like Iesu, which comes from the Greek, which is pronounced very similar to the Latin, something along the lines of Iesu. But that is taken from the Hebrew. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English, roughly. So where we get the name Jesus. In Hebrew, this name is Yeshua. And Yeshua is the slamming together of two Hebrew words. The first word being Yahweh, what we talked about just moments ago. The name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And it takes another Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for salvation, and slams those two words together. So Yahweh and salvation, you slam them together and you get something like Yeshua, which means something along the lines of Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So when they give the child the name, they say you're going to call him Yahweh saves. You follow this. Just to speak the name of Jesus declares that the God of Israel was faithful to his promises, was faithful to his people, and indeed saves his people. Just saying the name of Jesus declares the faithfulness and salvific nature of the God of Israel found and encountered in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus' name means. It means Yahweh saves. He is faithful. He is true to his promises. He saves his people. So we know how important this name Jesus is. All of that story in the Old Testament is climaxing in Jesus. Yahweh saves. We now know his name, which is good. And it goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel 
which means God with us. It's, kind of, it's a bit confusing, right? They just told you the kid's name. Poor Joseph, you know, he's going like, my, my fiance is pregnant. I know it's not me. An angel shows up, says, no, marry her, gives me a name. One verse later in the Bible, it's a different name. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew is cluing you into something. He's, if, if you're not familiar with our traditions, he's saying you need to know that Emmanuel, Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. Now, track with this. Something incredibly profound is being revealed in these two names. Like an immense amount of theological truth is being revealed in names. This baby is both Yahweh saves and God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. Okay, now start thinking about the massive problems we've been encountering. In week one, the massive problem of the line of David appears corrupted and broken. And the genealogy helps us look at that in a way that we might see a solution and a remedy to this. And now we've encountered a second problem. Where is this Shekinah glory of God? Where is God uniquely and uniquely revealing his presence to be with his people? And now we get two names. One, Jesus, Yahweh saves. The second name, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew is using these two names to, to make you almost take that deep breath and, and, and have hope maybe for the first time in a long time and go, is this not only the rightful heir to the throne of David, but is this Jesus the one in whom Yahweh will finally bring us salvation and the one in whom we see the return of the glory of God himself? Now, what Matthew hints at in his gospel through these two names is made kind of crystal clear at the beginning of a different gospel. There's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Matthew. But John begins his gospel like this in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, follow this. Who's the Word? In Matthew, if you're familiar with it, it's Jesus. He makes that clear in the first 13 verses. But this Jesus became flesh and is dwelling among us. He's dwelling. The Greek word for dwelt here is skenao. And skenao cannot be translated into English. Like, it's impossible. Because skenao literally means to tabernacle. To tabernacle. So we, in English, we can't say the word became flesh and then was tabernacling among us. We don't have that. That's not in our usage or our language usage. So translators do their best job to translate the concept. And they do a really good job if you understand what's going on. The word, who is Jesus, is now tabernacling among us. Now, what should immediately come to mind if you're thinking about something tabernacling among his people? You go all the way back. And what happened in the first tabernacle? God was surrounded by a tent, and inside of the tent was his presence, and he was around his people. Now, what do we have here? 
the word is now tabernacling among us, not in a tent, but in human flesh. The word now tabernacles, not in a tent, but as a human being. And God once again is dwelling among us, among his people. And then if it was still kind of hidden, what John is trying to get at, he makes it abundantly clear. And when you see this Jesus, you see his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus enters into the world, it is the answer to the question, will Yahweh save? And it is also the answer to the question, where is this special Shekinah-like dwelling presence of God? Where is God living among his people now? And it's in the person and work of his son, Jesus. Jesus is our Emmanuel. And in Jesus, if you look at him, you see the glory of God. Now, this is like ridiculously good news for a number of reasons. And, and, and one for kind of humanity as a whole, but then on an individual level. But first for humanity as a whole. It, it means that the God we worship chooses to dwell with his people. From beginning to end, that's part of the heart of God, is God dwelling with his people. And again, as we talked about, you know, you can just take that for granted. We've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian tradition to kind of go like, oh yeah, if there is a God, he should be good and like us. Like, why would you assume that if there is an almighty, infinite, holy being, that he should think you're awesome? Like, that's just assumed like a given. This wasn't the assumption of the contemporary religious systems of the time of the Bible. So if you look at ancient pagan religion, that wasn't just assumed. In fact, the story is told opposite things. So for example, in the creation account in the Babylonian myth, the Enuma, Enuma Elish, one of the prime gods, Apsu, um, decides that he needs to kill his children. It's like, man, they really get on my nerves. I'm going to take them out. It says this. It says that his children make so much noise that neither by day nor by night can Apsu find rest. And so the kids are so noisy all of the time that he decides to take them out. Now, some of you are laughing because that's like unbelievable. And then some of you are laughing because it's incredibly relatable and believable. <laughs> so, wait, you're telling me them kids make noise all day and all night and then dad finally lost his temper and he said, I'm going to take them out. And he announces to his, his wife, Tiamat, behold, I, I'm going to now kill my children. The kids annoy God. He wants to take them out. And then, for example, think about um, the Greek titan Prometheus. Prometheus steals fire from heaven to give it to the aid of human beings. And what does Zeus, what like the main god, do to Prometheus? He punishes him. He ties him to a giant stone. He chains him to it. And he commands an eagle, which an eagle is the symbol of Zeus, to come and eat the insides of Prometheus out. Even worse than that, Zeus uses his power to regenerate the insides of Prometheus so that every single day the eagle begins again at eating out the insides of Prometheus. So it's an unfair assumption to just be, if there's more powerful beings, well, of course they think we're great. But the story of scripture from beginning to end 
is the story of a God who's choosing to dwell with his people, to give them his presence, his very being. And he dwells among us in gardens, in tabernacles, in temples, and in Jesus. Now there's another reason. That's sort of like why it's good news for the world. But why is it good news for us as individuals? Last week, I showed you this image. Uh, Drew, Pastor Drew Dowler, our worship leader, screen captured that on one of his news apps. He opens up a news app, and the first thing he sees is this. And you need to read all that. I'll explain it. But essentially, it's four news articles, one dealing with war in Afghanistan stuff, one dealing with the, the fires in the West Coast, the other one dealing with the floods on the East Coast, and the bottom one with COVID. And if you were here last week, I was like, dude, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you see? A symbolic representation of like the apocalypse, man. It's war, pestilence, fire, and flood. It's like horrific. And that was last week. And it's like a week has gone by and guess what? Just more bad stuff has happened all across the world. And then yesterday, um, you guys saw this because it was, was everywhere. It was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So there's on all the news stations and all of social media, people are sharing stories of, of, of 9-11. And there's all these like stories of incredible courage and bravery. Um, I read for the first time complete, the complete transcript of that gentleman, Todd Beamer on Flight 93. And, and it's like, you can't even get through it. Especially if you have kids, you can't get through it. It's like this guy knowing he's, he's, he's going to go down, but he's going to try to do the right thing. And he's saying, please tell my wife and kids I love them. And he ends the phone call by saying the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. It's like these incredible stories of bravery and courage. But at the same time, there's also these images and stories of just immense suffering and immense human evil. And oftentimes we can be removed like we are in that case by 20 years. So we're going back and remembering stuff that happened. But for the people who experience that, they still live with the sting of dad dying. And it's been 20 years and it still hurts. And even though we don't have, most of us don't have direct experiences with necessarily that event, we can go around and we, if we all shared our stories, we all have stories where there's immense suffering, immense loss, immense human evil, wrong and wickedness. And we walk with the sting of that with us for the rest of our lives. It's like the world is brutal, immense human suffering and immense human evil. So you walk with it and you experience it. It's like, what are you going to do? How do you how do you navigate through that? How do you, you know, sometimes when I hear the story that people have had, I don't even understand how they get up in the morning. You know? You may look down at someone and be like, I don't know how they could be this bad. And sometimes you hear their story and you go, I don't even know how you get up in the morning. They're all that you've been through. And it's like, what does... What does this have to do with the presence of God? Some of you um, might have a similar memory to this. And if you don't, you, you can just pretend. Um, and some of you, it happened a long time ago. Some of it might be recent. Some of you might be in that phase right now. But um, picture a couple who's engaged. 
and they're broke. They're broke, you know? And some of you are immediately remembering, yeah, that's how we start. Ain't nothing change. Um, or it's like, just, yeah, I remember that, man. And, you know, we were so scared. We were so young. And we had nothing. But when we looked at each other, we said, man, you know what? It's okay if we're broke. It's okay if we live in this ghetto house. It's okay if we have a ghetto car. It's okay if I got to do like, can't afford a wedding ring, man. We're just going to tie some yarn around our finger and change it out once a week, put it in the washing machine and put it back on. It's okay if I'm broke. We don't have the house. We don't have the car. Why? Because, you know, it's as long as we got each other. Remember that old song? It's like, as long as we got each other, man. It's going to be okay. I don't care about the nice house, the, the, the nice car. We could be ghetto. We could be broke. I'll eat cup of noodles with you till the day I die. As long as I have you, we'll make it through this world, right? Christian, you have Christ. And whatever happens in the mess of this world, whether pestilence or war or fire or flood, you have Christ. God gives you his very presence, his being. And he does so willingly. He desires to dwell among his people. And in Jesus, we see that most clearly. You look at Jesus, you see the glory of God. You've got Christ. It doesn't mean this life isn't going to be easy. Trust me. We can all share our stories. There's pain. There's heartache. Horrible things happened yesterday. Horrible things happened today and they'll happen tomorrow. But the Christian has the dwelling Shekinah glory presence of God with them. And the, I'm going to skip to like a verse that we'll, we'll, we'll read in two years at the end of Matthew. But I want to show you something important. How the gospel starts and how it ends. The gospel begins with the promise of a child who will be the very presence of God. This is how the gospel of Matthew ends. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the promise of his presence. And so in this mess of a world, in the brokenness, we have the presence of God and it's promised and he gives us our mission. We're to go therefore and make disciples of the nations. We go into the darkness. We go into the brokenness. And when a Christian, when the church goes into the world, they bring the very presence of God with them. The church brings the presence of God with them into the darkest of places. Because God has given us his presence. And so we have this mission in the world outlined here. But we're not alone to do it. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Now, on a very personal level, as individuals, uh, there's another layer to this that's, that's, that's just as important. Many of you have, have been abandoned in some way or forgotten or betrayed. And maybe that was your husband who abandoned you. 
your wife who abandoned you. Maybe you grew up without a father. You never knew him. And so you grew up thinking, my father left me. He didn't care. And maybe you feel the sting of that today. And maybe it's you have a torn relationship with your children, and so you feel like your children have forsaken you. Or maybe it's some friend or family or coworker. It doesn't matter. I'm sure most of us in life have experienced in one way or another the pain of being abandoned, forsaken, betrayed. You're lost and no one cared to find you. There is one who will never leave you or forsake you or abandon you or betray you. He is faithful always to his promises. He is faithful always to his promises. And Jesus' word says that those who are in him, his presence will go even to the end of the age. And so, again, that doesn't take away all the pain, all the suffering. But what it does is it gives us strength in our present moment. One day there will come a day where God will right all wrongs. And there will be a new creation and there will be no need for tabernacle or temple because the Lord himself will be the son and the presence of the living God. And he will shine brightly in the new creation and death will be no more. Famine will be no more. All of that stuff goes away until that day. Life can be difficult, but you cling to the promises of God and you cling to the presence of God and you march on with your mission orders to be faithful to the day that God returns and makes all things new. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, you follow this? On the night Jesus was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread so this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of, of me. And so, Lord, we remember your death on our behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The apostle Paul would say, when you take this, you are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Lord, you've been faithful to us. May we in turn be faithful to you until our deaths or your return. Father, we give you thanks for your son. And we say that every day and we say that every Sunday, but I don't ever want it to be said lightly. There's a weightiness, a heaviness to the name of Jesus. In Jesus, Yahweh saves his people. In Jesus, your presence is revealed most clearly. And so, Lord, on this day, we want to worship your son for his person and his work. And we thank you that you do not abandon, you do not forsake. You send us the spirit of Jesus. So we, as we close in worship, may we fix our eyes on your son and properly acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.